What we're going to do is we'll read the passage, we'll pray, and uh, we'll talk about it. Last week we talked a lot about what dating is not. It's not marriage. It's not uh, this covenantal thing, like you don't go to an altar and make promises and are joined as one. But we didn't talk much about what dating is or could be. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight from a different passage. And I, again, just like last week, I only really have one point. Keep it simple. Here's the point. Wise relationships, last week we said, can tell the difference between pretend and real. Tonight, wise relationships remember what story they're living in. So wise relationships remember what story they're living in. Here is the story that we're talking about. Why don't you stand up? This is Romans 13. Last week, we're in Proverbs. This week, we're in Romans 13. Asking the question, how does the gospel shed light on all of our questions about dating and romance? This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says to us, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, he's about to list several of the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shouldn't murder, you shall not steal or covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this, knowing the time that, is already, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing around in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Let's pray together. Father... um, We need you every week. Perhaps this week we're more aware of our need for you. We spent a week last week talking about dating and and romance and relationships. And that is a place where everybody feels confusion. Some, many feel shame and regret. Uh, Many wonder if we can ever have a healthy relationship again. Many wonder if the scars and cuts from the past will ever heal Many wonder if there's hope. Many wonder about relationships they're in now. And so uh, remind us, God, now that you are our father. You are the tender one. You are the truth teller. You are the lover of our souls. We also have school. It's October. We have, is my resume ever going to get me a call back or interviews? All of these kind of things are pressing in on us even now, tonight, So, Holy Spirit, come and clear the clutter that we might see the one you love, Jesus. The one who laid his life down, who died the death of a fool, that we might be wise. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks. You can take a seat. So, I was thinking, um, actually tonight, that... This area of our lives, this romantic area of our lives or our dating lives, it's so big and it resonates with so much of uh, of us that there's entire genres of the movies we watch, of the music we listen to devoted just to this, romantic comedies or or romance uh, novels or romance um, or, or, or love ballads or love songs. They're specifically devoted to this part uh, of our life. 
uh, to this romantic part of our life that they get their own genre. And we're surrounded by that. It's in all of the shows we watch. Even the stuff like Walking Dead has its little love stories or the threads of those stories that are woven through it. It's in the music we hear, the TV we watch, the shows we binge on. But it's also closer to home. Uh, It is in our Instagram feeds, our Facebook feeds, Snapchat, everything right before us. And it's all around you because you're dating, your friends are dating, people around you are dating. Um, And here's the thing about how visual this stuff is. Because in movies, in Instagram, in Facebook, and in you glancing across Corbett and seeing some of your friends who are dating together, with pictures or with images, you are left to fill in all the gaps yourself. This is why Facebook can become so depressing, particularly in the summertime or some other time. All your friends are on these awesome trips or they're like, I love my girlfriend or my boyfriend. They're the best thing that ever happened to me. And you're sitting there alone, piercingly lonely. Uh, And you are filling in the gaps of that narrative and that storyline. Oh, look how happy everybody else is. Look how they found that person they were looking for. And look at me. Maybe I'm, that's a little bit hyperbolic, right? Proving a point there. But, but when we just see a picture, a picture's worth a thousand words. Who supplies the thousand words? You do. And so uh, the point of this is, is to show us how saturated we are, how surrounded we are with stories about romance, with ideas and visions of what a man and a woman, as they're falling in love with each other or super interested in each other and want, to, and want to find out if there's something more there, you don't have to wait for the Bible to say anything to you about that. You and I have been schooled in this since we were little kids. We got PhDs in romance. Whether, uh, whether those are healthy ideas or not, we'll find out. Um, but we, uh, culture, pictures, art, music was first on the scene, not this message tonight. So these ideas are going to wrestle with ideas you already have, what we believe. Uh, There's a guy named Tim Keller. His name will sound familiar to some of you. But he and another guy named Ernst Becker uh, are kind of commentating on this observation that I just shared with you. And they say, never before in history has there been a society so filled with people, so idealistic in what they're seeking in a spouse or a dating partner for that matter. He says, we live in an age of apocalyptic romance. I'll explain that in a second. We've removed God and his design for marriage, and we've replaced him with unbearable expectations for transcendent relationships. People put divine hopes on romance. So let me just highlight a few tidbits of that, and I'll tell you kind of what he means there. We have unbearable expectations for transcendent. Like Transcendent means I'm walking on the clouds, like... I'm like hovering three feet above the ground. I'm so happy and I'm on top of the world. That's what transcendent means. I've kind of left the world with all of its cares and concerns and and sadnesses and responsibilities. And it's just like, this is like Disney apocalypse. I found that person. It's here. Unrealistic expectations, transcendent relationships, idealism for who we're looking for in a spouse or a partner. And with apocalyptic romance, he means this kind of like otherworldly Romance that, t- that transports you to another parallel universe. So that's what he's saying when he looks around us. But this is the story that you and I live in. I'm not saying that's bad or that's good. I'm saying that's the way it is. Every culture has to deal with the surrounding stories 
First century Rome had stories about romance that Paul was affirming some parts, rejecting other parts. So we have to do the same. This is kind of the air we breathe, and it's believable. And this storyline, this apocalyptic romance, has a hold on your emotions and your dreams and your hopes and your disappointments here. Um, This apocalyptic romance, what's the plot line? What's the storyline? We've kind of been using that word as a metaphor. There's a story. How would, okay, what's the story then? If I had to boil it down to half a sentence, I would say this. This uh, storyline about dating or apocalyptic romance is this. Everything changes when you meet that special someone. Okay? It's pretty simple. Everything changes. Everything is different. Day one, you didn't know that person. Day two, you met them. You're dating now. Everything's different. That's what the storyline is. And I think, uh, you know, remember back to all the movies and songs you've seen about this, the day I met this person. A key word there is everything. Everything changes. You've been transported to that other place where there's no more problems. We talked a little bit last week about how when we, uh, again, dating is an activity, we're not saying anything bad about that at all. That's how our culture, uh, just like courtship in the past, that's how we have kind of figured out that a guy that's interested in a girl and a girl that's interested in a guy can explore whether marriage is a good idea or not. We just call it dating. That's not bad. We're playing marriage is what's hurtful. And when we bring those marriage expectations about our time, I demand your time, or I have a right to all of your time, we get into bad places. Everything changes. My, My expectations about your time, my expectations about exclusivity change. Yesterday, you were allowed to talk to any other guy, but now that we're dating, you're not allowed to be around any other guy or talk to any other guy. Or continue on any of those other friendships because you're mine now. You're my boyfriend or you're my girlfriend. Everything changes. Everything changes with sex. I didn't have any rights or responsibilities, but now you owe me sex. Now, you, now physical sexual relationship, it's my right. You can't deny that to me. We're exclusive. We're dating. Everything changes. About intimacy, about what we talk about, what we share, what we put on the table. Everything changes. Boundaries. Everything changes. When you find that person, this is the story that we have been schooled in uh, from our earliest moments. Our rights and our responsibilities change. We're possessive. We get jealous. We get competitive. We get hurt feelings, and sometimes we feel used. Everything changes. Uh, But again, like we said last week, some of this is just baggage from us uh, playing out of our league. dating, being friends who are exploring a different kind of relationship, thinking we're actually married. Here's my point before we get into some of the practical stuff, though. There is a huge connection between what you think dating is and how you date, or what you think dating is and how you go about your interest in someone you're attracted to. There's a connection. Remember the quote I said last week? This author said, before I know how I'm supposed to act, I have to know what story I'm in, right? You have to know what story you're in, or you have to know what kind of relationship you're in before you know how to act inside of that relationship. Does that make sense? It's kind of like if you're an actor, you need the script before you know your lines and your role. 
And so when we live in a story of apocalyptic romance, my suggestion to you is we make dating unnecessarily, it's already hard, we make it unnecessarily difficult, unnecessarily confusing, unnecessarily painful, um, unnecessarily tempting. And I think that wisdom, uh, that Jesus making us wise in our relationships offers a simpler, clearer, less cluttered path that doesn't break you if it goes south. So how does this passage do this? How is Romans 13 a picture of this, an exit ramp off of this kind of rat race of the things we've been talking about? Because how does it do it? It reminds you what story you, if you're a Christian, what story you are already living in. This is not a call to you to come into a story or to believe something. This is Paul encouraging Christians the story you are already in, the play, the act that you are already in. All he's doing is reminding you of your lines. What kind of behavior, what kind of life fits inside of the story that God has in his grace pulled you into? So if if the gospel is the story and the way he talks about it in this passage is your story then we should expect it to affect how we play the part, the romantic part, how we play the part of a boyfriend or a girlfriend or someone who's interested in someone else. Um, It should shed light on that. And so here's, here's my big point with that. For the Christian, not much changes when you begin to pursue another person. You say, hey, I really like you, or let's just get coffee and you know you like them, and you're trying to see where it goes, whatever. For the Christian, not much changes. I'm not saying nothing changes. That would be unrealistic and untrue. But not much changes. None of the sturdiest, most fundamental realities of who you are and what life is like, or who God is, none of that has changed. And so there's, there can be tremendous continuity and similarity between your life before you had that conversation. Let's be a little extra intentional about our relationship. Let's get to know each other than afterwards. And so not, not terribly much changes for the Christian as they begin to uh, pursue or get extra time with that person that they're, they think is cute or hot or pretty or funny or whatever. And so this storyline, the not much has changed storyline, produces a very different kind of dating than the everything changes storyline. Okay, makes sense? Two scripts produce very different outcomes. We've already talked about what the first script produces. We talked about it last week and a little bit already. So what does Paul say in this passage hasn't changed for the Christian? Hasn't changed in your life? Well, the first thing is this. God's primary agenda in your life hasn't changed at all. His primary agenda in your life, your sanctification You, having already been made new, now being made new in all the nooks and crannies of your life and your relationships. That was the same yesterday and the same the next day. After that relationship, clarity comes to you and you begin to pursue that person. God calls you to live your life for the exact same thing before and after. For his glory, for his pleasure. He calls you to treat that person the same way he did the day after as he did the day before. To love your neighbor, to do no wrong, 
to take care of your friend, to bear patiently with your friends. And these are the things that Paul draws attention to in the passage. And I think, again, this stuff has the power to clear away some clutter. Um, And for some of you, it clears away some of the intimidation about going on your first date or asking that girl or that guy to go do something. Because for some of us, I was telling you last week, I didn't even call a girl until I was 24, 25. Because I was so overwhelmed. I was like, I'm not ready to get married. I'm not ready to have all those responsibilities and everything on me because I, 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 I assumed dating was one inch below marriage. And so for some of you, this lightens the load of what dating could be. What if it had much more in common with a friendship than it does with marriage and all that that entails? What's the story you live in, Christian? What's the point of the story? Verse 11 and 12. Paul starts talking about this metaphor of the sun rising and things changing. He says, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you, Christians, to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, here's the, here's, that's the script. That's the story. Here's the behavior. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. He says later, let us walk in the light. Let us put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is God's work in your life through Jesus, through his spirit, has changed everything for you. And those are changes that are indestructible changes, immovable changes. Nothing threatens them. Nothing can remove them. Nothing can erase them. That is your footing, the person of God and what he's doing in your life. That is your rock that you stand upon that never changes. And so he says... Even for boyfriends and girlfriends, even for people going on dates, you owe nothing to that other person. That's very, very countercultural. You owe them nothing except this, and this is also countercultural love. You think, oh, yes, Paul said, I don't owe you anything except the kind of love, the kind of sacrificial love, the kind of protection that we've been talking about with friendship the past couple of weeks before here. Owe nothing to one another except for love. This contrasts with the idea that in dating, now all of a sudden you owe me something or I owe you something. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, he says in verse 10. Contrast this with an idea of dating that leaves a path of huge collateral damage behind us, of wrongs, of breakage, of bleeding of shame. Love does no wrong to our neighbors. He says after that, lay aside the dark deeds and walk into the light. These dark deeds are the, are the behaviors, the way of living that used to fit when you were dead and separated from God. There was a behavior that, that kind of flowed out of that script that I am my own God, I decide my own ways. The behaviors that fit with that are these dark deeds that he talks about. He's saying, you're not dead anymore. You are alive. He says also, you are a new creation. You're new. The old is gone. The new has come. You're alive. You're resurrected forever in Jesus. Remember the story you're living in. And he says, behave properly as in the day. Leave behind the partying, the sexual promiscuity. You've heard before probably the the Greek word there is porneia. Sensuality, tension, jealousy, competition, fighting. All of these ways that made sense to who you used to be, but now make no more sense. Think about it this way. 
Um, I watched two Matt Damon movies in the past week. One was one of his very first ever. What was it called? The School Days? School Ties. This was like, he was probably like 15. It was before Good Will Hunting. And then I watched The Martian. What if Matt Damon never left the script of that first movie? But every other movie he's ever been in, he keeps reciting the same lines, playing out of the same role. It's like you didn't get the memo. You're in a different story now. There's different lines, behaviors that are appropriate now that didn't fit you before. But you're a different person. Now you're astronaut stuck on Mars. Don't talk about this, uh, this, other, school, this other story was about this Ivy League mess. And uh, it's kind of like Dead Poets Society. Different role, different story, different life flows out of that. That's what Paul is saying to you. You are different by God's grace. So here's where I want to finish. Spend a few minutes by saying, if we're in a different story, by God's grace, and we have different lines or a different way of living that best fits who you are now, what are the cues? What are the cue cards that say, hey, Ben, okay, you're trying to get to know Anna and figure things out with y'all's relationship. Remember what story you live in. Here's some of those cue cards. Here's some of those cues. And um, I need to give credit where credit is due. Number one, a lot of this comes from the stuff in Proverbs we've been thinking about the past few weeks. Number two, this comes from my own scars. I told you all last week, uh, you're a fool if you listen to a 34-year-old for dating and marriage advice. been married three years. Uh, we dated two and a half years. Um, you should want more out of the people telling you how to date and how to be married than a guy with three years under his belt and a guy with as many mistakes as we've made. So that's another place I'm pulling from is my own mistakes and scars. And the third is from a friend of mine from seminary who I think has done some of the clearest, sharpest thinking about Christians and dating. He avoids all of the legalistic talk of just burdening you with a thousand boundaries and making you think things like romance or things like sexual attraction are bad and evil when they're not. Um, He avoids that, but he also avoids the licentious view of dating that's like, God didn't say anything about it, do whatever you want. And I feel like he's just really sharply thought through this. And so uh, I want to tell you up front, um, a lot of these ideas come from him and those other places. There's four landmarks to the story you're in, to the biblical story. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We've talked about creation a few weeks ago. We've talked about the fall and the ruin in our relationships. We've talked every week about redemption, that God is reconciling everything to himself through Jesus. That is the backdrop of all of reality, God fixing relationships. And the fourth is consummation. It means kind of these things coming into fulfillment. This will make more sense in a second, but we're about to land the plane and get very practical and concrete. This creation landmark, how does this, how does this piece of the story hold up a cue card of what does this practically mean for how we think about dating? Number one is this, you are a creature. You're a creature. You're not the creator. You're not omniscient. Let that sink in. That's such good news. You can't tell your future. Certainty is something we all crave and something that eludes all of us at the same time. When it comes to our dating lives, this this craving for certainty, 
And when people give you dating advice and they say you shouldn't even go on a date unless you know you can marry them, or they say, guys, you need to be upfront about your intentions. You need to tell this girl, I really like you. I think I want to marry you, but we need to figure that out. They, they, what they're telling you is you have to be certain. Some of them are telling you that. Not everybody, but they're, they're suggesting you need certainty. You need omniscience if you're going to do this wisely. And you can't because you're a creature. And remembering what story you're actually living in frees you from having to do that. Um, I told you I'd tell you a few stories from me and Anna's relationship. This, this hurt us in two different ways, and Jesus used this in beautiful ways in our relationship too. I love certainty. Anna does too. Maybe not as much as me. But in our relationship, the way God used Two years of awesome time together and two years of sometimes excruciating and confusing time together. The way he used that is to break me and to remind me I am a tiny little man who is called to live by faith and not by sight. Who is never expected to live by omniscience. But I believed the storyline from somewhere else that you have to know this certainty at first sight, love at first sight. I'd suggest to you that doesn't fit who you are as a creature. And so um, I analyzed our relationship almost to the point of killing it because I was, I was interpreting every situation, every conversation, every emotion. One day felt this way, the next day felt that way. What I wanted was God-like omniscience. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin as a creature. And I was trying to steal from God what he had because I didn't trust him. It had, it had so much less to do with me and Anna than me and Jesus. I was uncomfortable living a life of faith where I had to trust what Jesus knows because I wanted to know it for myself. Guys and girls, think about the implications of this. Girls and guys both for your expectation of how certain you expect the person who wants to get to know you better, how certain you demand that they be. We need to give each other space to learn, to not know everything what we're doing. And if you're afraid of starting to date, it's okay to not know what you're doing. It's okay to be awkward. It's okay to be in real time pursuing someone and figuring it out in community with other people. You must date by faith. You cannot date by sight. If you do, you will crush yourself or the other person. The second thing is this. Marriage, this is from Genesis 2. Marriage is the ultimate expression of man-woman relationships, not dating. What's your goal in dating? Is it dating for the sake of dating? Uh, If it is, you need to be honest about your motives. Your motives are probably fun or emotional fulfillment. And this other person is a prop in your story to get those things. Um, The ultimate fulfillment of the man-woman relationship in God's design is marriage. Is that the purpose of your dating? I'm not saying you have to know right up front. This kind of balance is what I just said. And a seesaw. Certainty, we shouldn't expect that completely, but do we just go willy-nilly, blindly, like, oh, whatever, we're just killing time here. You know you don't want that. None of you wants to be in a relationship with someone where they're just kind of flippantly, whatever, thoughtlessly killing time, right? There, is there a goal, is there a destination to your pursuit of other people? Are you trying to clarify whether it would be wise 
a good idea to marry this person or not? Or are you just doing it because you've always dated and you always want a boyfriend or a girlfriend and that's kind of the next person up? There's a way out of that pattern if that's you. And it looks like these, these things we're talking about. So the implications about this clarity about marriage, not certainty, but clarity, is an appropriate and a wise goal in dating. And when that's not present, you've got to ask yourself the question, why are you doing this? Uh, what are you doing? Um, this also has an implication about when we date. Proverb, or Song of Solomon talks about not a, love not awakening or waking up before it's time. We know this about Eli. Never wake up Eli before he's ready to wake up, or else you have to deal with the consequences, uh, which is uh, putting down whatever you're doing and watching him. And so are you, are you at a place where you're ready to pursue a kind of relationship like this? Are you at a place where marriage is a realistic possibility for you, given your age? Sometimes people say, I'm a freshman. Is it wise to date or not? If you could see yourself getting married to this person in the, in the foreseeable future, I, some of you can do that. Some of you have done that. That's awesome. Uh, for some of you, that's not a realistic possibility. So if the goal is clarity in marriage, why would you be entering that relationship when you're 18 and can't do anything about it for several years? Are you making this unnecessarily difficult and impossible uh, to remain faithful? This also affects who we consider dating, who we consider uh, pursuing to find out if we could marry them or not. 2 Corinthians 6 talks about not being unequally yoked. This is a place where you go back to C.S. Lewis's friendship conversation. It is not a good idea for a Christian to be in a relationship that's trying to move towards marriage with a non-Christian. C.S. Lewis said friendship is about two people who see the, sa- the world the same way, have the same loves, have the same passions, and they're moving in the same direction. Paul says other places, what, what, what place does light have with darkness? It's two people moving in different trajectories. You might feel like you're this far apart now. Where are you going to be in 30 years? You don't understand what life is like for the other. You don't understand sadnesses. You don't understand joys. You don't understand how to raise a kid together. That's why he warns us against it. The last is this, premarital romantic feelings are part of the goodness of creation, not something to be pushed away as bad. You shouldn't feel guilty that you're attracted to this person. You should be careful, though. Uh, sexual desire is an intentionally strong desire because it's meant to show our union with each other and to, sh- to point to our union with God. But those feelings, that attraction, isn't a bad thing in itself. And if you've been raised in a way that kind of makes those things feel like you're, you're, you're guilty because you feel attracted to the opposite sex or attracted to this person in particular, I want to I push on you a little bit to consider, did not, God, uh, did not God design men and women to react to each other in this way? The second thing, and I'm going to speed up really quickly here, is the fall, you're a sinner, and the person you're pursuing is a sinner. Do you remember that you bring into that relationship all of your patterns, all of your baggage, and all of your past? You take account for that? Um, I didn't realize this till two years into dating Anna. As I'm struggling with certainty, um, I realize, actually, I've struggled with certainty in every decision in my life. What college am I going to go to? What fraternity am I going to join? Am I going to join a fraternity 
Am I going to go to seminary after? What grad school am I going to go to? Which apartment am I going to live in? Which job with RUF am I going to take afterwards? Every turning point in my life was paralyzing because I struggled to trust Jesus. So guess what? Is it any surprise that that pattern, I brought it into my relationship with Anna? Um, I could have spared her a lot of hurt and a lot of grief if I had owned that earlier and recognized I bring my sin into this relationship. It wasn't her fault. It's not God's fault. It was Ben being broken. It shouldn't surprise us. And it also means we have to bear patiently with the others we're in relationship with. This also means if we're sinners and they're sinners, we have to date publicly. We have to, go, we have to talk about our relationships. We have to talk about this increasing clarity about whether, A, I think I want to marry this person. B, I think I don't want to marry this person. C, I can't tell. This is one of the saddest things I see as a campus minister. Sometimes when people start dating, they retreat from community. Nobody has eyes on their relationship. Nobody knows. And so here's what happens. Um, either they say, hey, surprise, we want to get married, we're getting married, and everyone's like, uh, okay, awesome. Um, they, don't know how, they don't know what to make of it. Or you get to a point where you need, you're in the fog, you need other people to see for you. And to say, Ben, I know Anna's character. I've seen y'all together. I've heard you talk about her on the good days, the bad days, and the ugly days. This makes sense. This is good. This fits with the story you're in. God is big enough to carry you guys through this. Or you need people who say, brother, sister, this is not a good idea. Um, I'm not saying this to rain on your parade. There are some big red flags here. You got to slow down. You need people to be waiting and ready to help you when you're in the fog and can't see. If you haven't done your relationship in community publicly, nobody can help you except throw cliches at you that you're going to felt very misunderstood by. So we date in community and publicly. We guard each other's hearts. We protect our hearts in the precious places until somebody has committed to us or made commitment to the other. The last two are this redemption and consummation. I said this earlier, God's primary agenda in your life and in your significant other's life is their sanctification. He hasn't changed. He hasn't said, oh my gosh, been in our dating now. Let's get a different agenda here. Same agenda to purify and prune and conform me and Anna to the image of Jesus. And he's using every detail of our lives to accomplish that agenda. How is your relationship different if you're awake to that reality? Maybe we, we're less tempted to use the other person for our own selfish ends. Maybe we're more excited about participating and being a part of what God is doing in their life to renew them and to make them into the image of Jesus. Uh, maybe we're more willing to let other people help us be pushed in that direction. And so we, we love our neighbors in that way. We do no wrong um, in that way. And consummation, we remember where the story ends. The story is going somewhere. The story has a conclusion. And it's called God gets his way. Jesus is glorified. The spirit renews all of creation and we live with God forever. And things like dating aren't around anymore. And things like marriage aren't around anymore because it's a signpost that points to the concrete reality of Jesus and his church. 
What difference would it make to your dating if you remember that this story has a destination? It has a, it has a final chapter and end. And if you know that the end of this story is God showing you that all of this romance, that all of this marriage stuff is good because it pointed you to his eternal, unbreakable, forever love for his people. What happens if you remember the beginning, the brokenness, the redemption, and the end of the story? How does it change the way you play the role? Let's pray and ask that God will give us wisdom uh, to do this. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that we are united to you as we figure these things out. We are not alone. You're in heaven and us here, but the spirit has united us, joined us to you, the wise one, to you who is love. And that is our hope, Lord. Whether these things are hard or confusing or intriguing to hear, we pray that you would take them to the places they need to be taken in our hearts, in our relationships, and in our lives. Uh, We pray that you would tend to us, pastor and shepherd us, as we have heard some, uh, some new things and potentially some hard things. We pray you'll do all of this for your sake and your glory.